God in prayer once more before we go to his word. Let's pray. God, until that day comes, we pray that you would help us see Christ now by faith. That your spirit would enable us to do that by believing your word. And so speak to us now from this word in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, learning about where someone's from and what they do doesn't tell us everything about them, but it's certainly a good start for getting to know them. It's part of who they are. That's why in our most recent race for governor, one of the main ways that Governor McKee attacked Ashley Kalis was based on where she was from, not Rhode Island. Having only recently moved here, some voters were skeptical of her. And skepticism doesn't earn votes. That's why many of her ads and interviews were all about who she is. She wanted people to know her story, where she was from. She was trying to eliminate the mystery around her and build trust. Because a natural response to a mysterious person who just shows up is skepticism. Which is why we start with questions like, where are you from? What are you doing? Those are actually very good questions for getting to know Jesus. How well you can answer those questions will make a huge difference in how you live your life and even spend eternity. But the really strange thing about today's text is that Jesus actually raises questions about where he's from and what he's doing. He inserts mystery where people think they have knowledge. Why does he do that? Well, if we can answer that question, then it helps clarify who he is and why we should trust him with our lives. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to John chapter 7, verse 25. John 7, 25. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you can find that on page 949. 949. If you're new to the Bible... The large, bold numbers are the chapters, and the smaller numbers are the verses. And this morning we're looking at verses 25 through 36. Chapter 7, 25 through 36. Now, for context, uh, it's been a while. This book opened with the claim that Jesus is from God. He's come to earth in human form. And he gives eternal life to all who truly believe in him. And Jesus demonstrates that good news by doing miracles that reflect the goodness of God's kingdom. But one of those miracles is done on the Sabbath, which is fine. But the Jewish leaders have extra rules to make sure that no one breaks the Sabbath. And their traditions here have become a great source of protection and cultural pride. And so the religious leaders not only reject Jesus... They want to kill him. So Jesus heads north to his home country in Galilee where he continues to teach on the good news of God's kingdom and he does more miracles there. But then when people try to make him king, he retreats. Because his kingdom is less about the here and now of this world and more about the life to come. 
And that's not only disappointing to people, but it requires faith. Therefore, many people leave him and go back to whatever they were doing before. In today's passage, Jesus has gone back to Jerusalem. Not to do miracles this time like everybody wants, but to teach. And when he does, people are amazed with this teaching. But not everyone believes in him. Some remain skeptical and hostile. In this passage, John's warning us, don't reject Jesus because of what you don't fully understand. Don't reject Jesus because of what you don't fully understand. And there are three questions coming out of the text that we can ask in order to better know and understand the identity of Jesus and live our lives accordingly. First question, where is he really from? That's in verses 25 through 29. Where is he really from? Second, what is he really doing? What's he really doing? That's in verses 30 through 32. And third, where is he really going? Verses 33 to 36. Where is he really from? What's he really doing? Where is he really going? And as we answer these questions, a good one to ask throughout this sermon is how well do I really know Jesus? So first, where is he really from? Look at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Yet look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. Can it be true that the authorities know he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he's from. So the crowds here aren't oblivious to what's going on in the larger picture. Remember, we're back in Jerusalem for a festival. And the last time that Jesus was here at a festival, he healed a man who was crippled on the Sabbath. And when he was confronted by it, he claimed to be one with God the Father, doing the Father's work. Therefore, chapter 5, verse 18, the Jews began trying to kill him all the more. This is why Jesus refuses to go to Jerusalem with his brothers a little bit earlier in chapter 7, verse 7. The world hates me. You go up. I'm not going. Verse 10, Jesus went up, not openly, but secretly. Verse 13, nobody was talking publicly about Jesus for fear of the Jews. So clearly, Jesus is wanted dead by a powerful group of people, and everybody knows it. And yet, here he is, speaking openly, in public, against them. And they do nothing. I mean, he's just rebuked them before the crowds. And they're not doing anything about it. What does that mean? Could it be that they secretly believe Jesus really is the Messiah? I mean, notice the implication here. Evidently, there's something about Jesus that everybody sees, like in healing a man who couldn't walk, 
that says Jesus is obviously the Christ. And since the authorities are just letting Jesus teach publicly, it makes people wonder, maybe they've actually been convinced by this. And yet this is where the depravity of our hearts shows up. Good evidence for faith in Christ exists. But people can naturally find a way to disregard the evidence when a new belief requires an unwanted change. And so we foolishly rely on whatever our objections we can come up with in order to maintain our current belief and current way of life. I mean, believing in Jesus will come with lots of implications. So, like people do, especially when it comes to spiritual truths, apart from the Spirit's help, they deny what might be obvious. John's already told us and shown us why this is. People love darkness rather than light. So the people object in verse 27. But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he is from. That's the objection. Sound good enough for you? I hope not. (laughs) I hope that might make you question your own objections to Jesus. You know, if this is the one that allows them to just discount the healing of a man who was crippled. I hope this will make you question uh, your own reasoning for justifying your own sin. But for them, it's just hard to believe that Jesus really could be the Messiah when they know where he's from. After all, when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he comes from. That's what everybody thought. And we know how powerful what everybody thinks can be. But the belief that the Messiah's identity would be kept secret until his surprise, his surprise unveiling was, was based on popular thought and tradition, not Scripture. Now, of course, they know from Scripture that the Messiah will arise from David's city, Bethlehem, which is where Jesus was born. But people just assumed that like every other superhero we have, you know, he'd keep his identity secret until the right time. And these crowds knew where Jesus grew up, in Galilee. He's from Nazareth. They know his family. There's nothing secret about Jesus' background. They think they understand who Jesus is. But that doesn't mean they know him. Look at verse 28. As he was teaching in the temple, Jesus cried out, You know me and you know where I am from. Yet I have not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Jesus cries out, so he's making this very public, and he doesn't feel the need to point out their biblical heir, the fact that it doesn't say anywhere in Scripture that the Messiah will be sort of have a secret identity. He simply inserts mystery. Okay, you know me, and you know where I'm from, but you don't know who sent me, And I'm from him. So at a surface level, yes, they know who Jesus is. But they're wrong at a deeper level. Because they're not thinking about Jesus the way the scriptures have prepared us to. They're not thinking about the Messiah on spiritual terms. Like we read earlier, Micah 5.2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a man, yeah. But his origins are from antiquity, from ancient times. He's from God. Verse 28, the one who sent me is true. 
You don't know him. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. The way John often uses the word true is very theological. The true light, the true bread, true worshipers, or the true God. So Jesus isn't saying the person who sent me is correct. He's saying the one who sent me is true, as in the truth. God sent me, and you don't know him, but I am from him. Now, Israel, the the people that Jesus is talking to, they have God's law. And God has acted in their history to deliver them and reveal himself to them. He's made promises. They assume they know him. But as we've already seen, the law and all of God's promises to his people in the Old Testament point to Jesus. All the scriptures are about him. So if they reject Jesus, they can't know to they can't claim to know God in his law or even have God's promises. They can't claim to be his people. If they were, Jesus says, you'd believe me. This is why Paul will end up teaching that not all Israel is Israel. True Israel is always defined by faith, and that includes Gentiles. So the real question Jesus wants them to deal with regarding his origin is the authority of his message. Here's what matters about where I'm from. It's who sent me. He's from God. So if we ask Jesus, where are you from? He wants us to be able to answer who sent him. That's what he's telling the crowd. If you want to know God, you have to listen to me. So how well do you really know Jesus? You see, one of the most important questions that you can ask in life is this. Who am I listening to? Even though there are lots of things that you can say to describe yourself and they'd be true, like where you're from and what you do, a big part of your identity is found in who you listen to. We're created in God's image, and that's the most fundamental truth about us as people that determines why and how we treat all people with dignity and respect. But our creating God, whose image we're created in, has always created by his word. God speaks and creation comes into existence. He calls out Abraham by a promise. He creates the nation of Israel by giving him them his law. Jesus comes as his word made flesh. Saving faith comes through believing the gospel message. Okay? This is why ideas are so powerful. We're created in God's image and he's a speaking God. So even if we accept that our feelings are playing a huge role today in people's understanding of the truth, it's that idea of truth that's being communicated to us that's transforming us and our culture. In so many ways, one of the most important questions you can answer about your identity is, this is who I listen to. This is who I read. These are the people I trust when they speak. So who do you listen to? Why? 
Because you're being shaped by those ideas. You're being shaped by the words you hear. Is it a teacher? A certain news outlet? Certain friends? A a whole collection of people that you follow on social media? Or is it the one who is true because you're submitting your life to the Bible? That's why we want our regular diet as a church to be expositional sermons from God's Word. The main point of the sermon and all its application comes from the main point of the text. We, we don't intend or want to be a church that, that is simply a human echo chamber. Like much of what we hear on social media or in the rest of society. Where everybody believes and says what they want to hear and believe and then surround themselves with people who are saying those same things. Now, maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Uh, we're glad you're here. I understand if you think, well, yeah, but that's what the church is doing too. Uh, yes, sort of. But it's fundamentally different. Because it's God's word, not ours. And the Bible confronts us as sinners. It makes demands upon us for God's glory. It requires humility and faith. In other words, this isn't a human echo chamber. The the word that's reverberating among us, shaping us, comes from the one who is true. And it's not always what we want to hear. But Jesus makes it clear, if you don't listen to him, you aren't hearing the truth. So if we're really going to know Jesus, let's really read the Bible as if it's God's word. Because that's what Jesus, the prophets, and the apostles all claim it to be. It's God's word. So we need to push beyond a surface level reading of the text that only gives us a surface level experience of the text. We want to get deep down into the reality of what it's talking about. Now I confess, I was in my study this week and and my heart wasn't initially stirred by this particular text we're looking at today. Seth walked in and I told him it's it's sort of a dry text. And I was immediately convicted by that. If God has spoken, I need to work and pray to get my heart to the reality of the text. And yes, sometimes that takes a lot more time. Um, Sometimes it's it's a whole lot of effort depending on which text you're in. And maybe you need to get some help from others. But the reality of the text is worth it. Just think about this. Jesus is sent by God into this world. God came here. And he came speaking on behalf of God. He, Jesus did the Father's will. We have God's words in our hands today for life. And not one word is wasted. I mean, if, if Russia right now sent an ambassador to Ukraine on behalf of Putin with an offer of peace... Okay, needless to say, the whole world would lean in to see what that that guy's going to say. They would incline their ear. Jesus is God's peace offering to the world. Jesus is sent by God to teach on his kingdom and the way to enter into that kingdom and see God. To live with him forever. This is a big deal. And yet so often we can pick up the Bible and struggle the way that I did this week. We can 
have a heart posture that opens it and says, well, it's kind of saying the same thing. We might sit down with our coffee and Bible in the morning, read it and say, yep, that's what it says. And we just move on to the rest of our day. As if we didn't just hold in our hands the very words of the one true God, the father of heavenly lights, the giver of every good gift, the creator and sustainer of all things and the judge of the living and the dead. And not really incline ourselves with great intensity of of both joy and desire to hear what the Holy Spirit says and be seized by him. But these crowds don't want to hear. And so they try to seize Jesus. But their failure to do so clarifies what Jesus really came to do. And that brings us to the second question. What is he really doing? Verse 30. Then they tried to seize him. Yet no one had laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. What, just, what Jesus just said to all of them sounds offensive. Right? It goes against everything they believe about themselves. As a suffering minority under a global power, their spiritual history is their greatest source of pride and hope. You know, so they're thinking, we're God's people. He chose us. And then Jesus, a Jew, says, you don't know him, but I do. Which isn't how you win votes as a messianic king. It's, you're just offending everyone. Especially to people who believe they're good people. Like most people believe. Our own confirmation bias says, yeah, no one's perfect. But I'm a good person. And the implication there is that we believe we're good enough for God. So we're naturally offended by any notion that we're not. That's why the old dead pastors that I like to read... Uh, often write about how spiritual doubt can be evidence of real faith. You know, only the Christian who has been humbled by God's Spirit sees how unworthy they are of God's love. They don't think they're good enough. And yet the mature Christian knows and believes that they're more loved than they can imagine, not because of who they are, but because of who God is. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we want you to know that. Jesus didn't come to save people who were good. He came to save spiritual rebels because he loves us. And so he was willing to live a perfect life on our behalf. And then he laid down his life to suffer the full penalty of God's wrath for all the sins that we've committed. So through relying on him by faith, we can be forgiven and made right with God and enjoy him forever. That's true for all who believe. But if you think you're good enough for God already, you'll probably find that good news offensive. But what Jesus says here doesn't just sound offensive. It sounds blasphemous. It's another divine claim. Jesus is sent by God because, verse 29, I am from God. And suddenly their skepticism turns into all-out opposition. The unbelieving crowd becomes just like the Jewish leaders who believe Jesus must be killed. That's why at this moment they try to seize him. They intend to kill him. Yet, verse 30, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Given the context and given the rest of John's gospel, his hour 
refers to his death. Now, think about how the original readers hear that verse and every other reference to his hour. When John writes this, they already know that Jesus has been crucified. And by referring to this hour throughout the whole gospel, John's helping all of us see that the most important and central event in Jesus' ministry is that hour. This is the hour that his father has determined for him. And whenever it looks like it's in jeopardy, he intervenes. Everything in Jesus' ministry builds and moves towards that hour. It's why he came. It's his passage, passion. This is what he came to do, to die upon a cross. John's trying to show us everything about Jesus' ministry is heading towards a cross. It's where he'll accomplish his father's will where he'll accomplish his plan to save and the way that he'll enter into glory. At every point, that's what he's really doing. He's working on getting there. It's not about the miracles. It's not even about the teaching alone. It's all for nothing without the cross. And you need to see that if you're really going to enjoy a relationship with Jesus today. If you really want to know him. See, I I, I see this all the time with people who claim they know Jesus. But because of what's happening in their lives, they sit in judgment of God, wondering what is he doing? Or wondering if God really loves them. Because they're caught up in everything else that's happening around them. But if you really want to know Jesus in your joys and in your sorrows, then you have to interpret everything through the cross. And if you do, then even when you don't fully understand what God's doing, despite what you think or feel or how what what God says in his word and how that might confuse you, you can still know he loves you and is ultimately working for your good. It's all because of the cross. That's what his ministry was about. It was about that hour. This is what he's really up to. And it's clearly happening to God's perfect plan. We see that here in the text. Nothing can change that day or hour where Jesus will accomplish and secure God's ultimate plan for us. And John's, So they can try and seize him. But somehow it's their own hands that are tied. And John's purpose of recording it is so that we can see God's sovereignty and answer the question about what Jesus is really doing and believe. That's what we read about in verse 31. However, verse 31, many from the crowd believed in him and said, when the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than this man has done, will he? Many from the crowd are actually willing to deal with the obvious. Jesus looks like the Messiah. I mean, think about Moses as a Messiah-like figure. He not only brought God's word to his people, but God used him to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt through miraculous signs. So while there's no Old Testament text that explicitly says the Messiah would come doing miracles, looking for the promised prophet that's greater than Moses, it makes sense that people see Jesus doing miracles and conclude 
He's the promised Messiah, the greater Moses. They understand these miracles are signs. That's what they say Jesus is performing. They're pointers or evidence of who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah sent by God to proclaim the good news of the kingdom and accomplish his salvation. And that's kind of an obvious conclusion for many in the crowd. Look at what he's doing. These miracles. He must be the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, he's not going to come with more evidence than this guy has, will he? What more do you need to see? These are sufficient for faith. And yet clearly we have a divided crowd here. The contrast between verses 30 and 31 is one that we see throughout John's gospel. Every time Jesus does a miracle or engages in public teaching, the crowds are present, but not everyone reacts the same. It's light and darkness, faith and unbelief. Some believe, some don't. And that's John's way of saying to us, the readers, who are you? Which portion of the crowd do you most identify with? John tells us that he's written the gospel so that we'll be among the believing crowd. But some people always want more evidence. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe that's you. Uh, There's never enough. Even when the evidence is sufficient, you want more. Some of us can just be like addicted to skepticism. And if that's the case, the heart issue there might be fear. Others might not deny the facts or question the facts. They just want more facts before they commit. And the heart issue there might be pride. But as we've said before, sometimes people don't believe because of the way they live their lives. And the heart issue there might be a love of sin. But having said all that, notice these people are using good logic, which plays into what we believe. When the Messiah comes, he's not going to come with more evidence than this. In other words, everything that this man is doing points to the fact that he really is the Messiah. What more could we ask for? Look at what he's doing. And church, again, we can look to that hour and say, look at what he's done. If you evaluate the resurrection like we do all other historical events, it's a historical fact. And in my own times of doubt, this has been the event that I can't get away from logically. There's more evidence for the resurrection than there isn't. And even though I've never seen anyone raised from the dead, based on the eyewitness accounts we have, based on the historical evidence, the supernatural nature of the Bible, my own experience with the teaching of the Bible, all these things together, it just seems more logical to me to believe it than deny it. So logic does play into what we believe. But again, as we see here in the text, it's rarely alone. Even for us, we've invested our lives in certain belief systems by what we're doing And we've also got hearts that are like interpretive filters for our logic, sometimes not letting the facts through because of the implication for our lives. And the implications here are too great for the Pharisees. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about him, and so the chief priests and the Pharisees sent servants to arrest him. The unbelieving crowd tried to seize Jesus after he spoke truthfully about himself. And now when the believing crowd 
speaks truthfully about Jesus, the chief priests send their temple servants, which essentially function as the Jewish police. There's clearly an opposition against the truth, or at least against what they don't understand. And people are like that. We're threatened by what we don't fully understand. So not only are we skeptical, but we can be hostile. And if Jesus was persecuted for the truth, church, we shouldn't expect something different today. These murmurings of faith signal to the opposition they need to act. They don't want Jesus to be a topic of conversation. They want him gone, so they use force. So needless to say, Jesus' time with them is running out. And it signals to him his hour is getting closer. Which brings us to the final question we can ask to better understand who Jesus is. Where is he really going? Where is he going? Look at verse 33. Then Jesus said, I'm only with you for a short time. Then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. What Jesus says here in verse 33 is really a, a response to, his, to the call for his arrest. The, the then is a therefore. So his arrest signals to him the clock is ticking and the hour is near. So he goes ahead and tells them all his plan. I'm going to be with you guys for just a little bit longer. And then I'm going to the one who sent me. That's the goal. He's going back to his father to be with him in glory. This is what he'll, he'll be praying about in the garden in John 17 as he leaves his disciples and prays for all of his followers one day to be with him and the father so that we might share in his glory, which is amazing. And we should just pause and try to get to the reality of the text here. We have the same goal as Jesus. You see, if, if you really know Jesus... But then more important than answering the question of where are you from is where are you going? So how well do you know Jesus? Do you think about who you are based on where you're going? Is your life all about the here and now? And your relationship with Jesus all about what he can do for you here and now? If so, then you need to ask this question. Where, where is Jesus really going here in the text? Or to ask it a different way, where is he now? Where is Jesus now? If you know how to really answer that question, then your earthly life becomes a lot more meaningful as it takes on a heavenly perspective with a heavenly goal. All that matters when you take your last breath is that you will see your risen king And hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And so as a body, that's what we're about as a church. And churches can can become about lots of things sometimes. But we need a reminder here. This is where we're going. This is what we need to be about. We're here with a purpose. We're, We're here in Providence telling others about the good news of Jesus. So we have a mission. Because, because everybody's going to die and Jesus is going to come again. So, based on where he is right now, based on where we're going, we have a responsibility to tell the truth about him. But we're also covenanting together as, as members of this church to help us get one another home. 
We're just trying to get, help one another see Jesus. So it's good for us, like Jesus, to recognize we'll only be here a little while longer and get focused. We won't be here very long. Kids, it's a good time to listen up, or everyone here who considers himself young. <laughs> listen to everyone who's twice your age on this. Life is short. When you're young, it seems like life's moving really slowly and that it will take a long time before you get old. But again, everyone twice and three times your age will tell you life speeds up, it really is short. And then it's eternity. So don't be foolish and reject the only word that comes from someone who rose again. Just because you don't fully understand everything about him. Or you don't fully understand everything that's going on in your life right now and what God's doing. Or because you can't explain how God would take on flesh. Or how someone could, could, could die and come back to life. Some things are just beyond our understanding. But that doesn't mean they're not true. And if you're here today and you're someone who refuses to believe in something that you don't fully understand, that's really arrogant. To say something can't be true unless I fully understand it, it's quite the claim about myself and my own capacity for knowing everything. Now, I'm not saying that you should believe something irrational or illogical. But what if it's super rational? You know, it's just above your comprehension. What if it's outside normal experience? We need to humble ourselves and have an open mind. Test the claim however you can. But if there's a satisfactory explanation coupled with convincing evidence, then it's wise to believe it even if you don't fully understand everything. And that fits the entire message of the Bible, which has amazing consistency from many authors over many, many, many years. And its message is also consistent with history and with our human experience. So everything points to the Bible as being a word from God to us, and it's all about Jesus, who he sent. That's why Jesus is talking about his plan to this crowd. Except it's very cryptic. Right? Once again, he inserts mystery. And it's all kind of funny. Right? I mean, the police just got called. And he says, okay, I'm out of here. But you're not going to find me. And you can't come where I'm going. I mean, it sounds like he's going on the run like Jason Bourne. <laughs> but then he tells them, I'm going back to the one who sent me. So they don't really know who he is based on the fact they don't really know where he's from or where he's going because they don't know the one who sent him. So those who are confident Jesus isn't the Messiah are now asking questions. Verse 35. Then the Jews said to one another, where does he intend to go that we won't find him? He doesn't intend to go to the Jewish people dispersed among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, does he? What is this remark he made, you will look for me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? So it's important to know right here that the people in verse 35 are part of the unbelieving part of the crowd. 
Uh, we know that because of uh, verse 35. He says, then the Jews said to one another. So we had crowds, crowds, Jews here. And when John refers to the Jews, he's not referring to Jewish people, like in an ethnic sense, but to those who hang on to the Mosaic law and reject Christ. It's more of a theological term. And once again, they misunderstand him because they can't think about him on spiritual terms. They take him too literally. Maybe he's going to those forbidden Gentile lands where we can't travel. Maybe he's going to organize some sort of movement among the dispersed Jews. Who knows? But most likely, these same people felt like they were proved right when they finally arrested Jesus and his hour had come and they put him to death on a cross. Most likely, they felt like they proved Jesus wrong. We found you. We got you. And yet beyond their understanding, the cross is what he's talking about here. He knows he's going to die. That's why he's only with them a little bit longer. And through his death on the cross, he'll enter into his glory with the Father. This is inconceivable to the unbelieving mind, but it's true. And Jesus proves it to be true. After Jesus goes back to his Father... These people were, in fact, never able to find him. Many people have tried to explain the empty tomb. But if the disciples knew where the crucified body of Jesus was, then they wouldn't have died for maintaining a lie. Self-preservation is a powerful thing. And if the Romans or Jews had stolen the body, then they would have been happy to present it in order to put down this annoying movement called Christianity. We know they would have done that because they were killing people, trying to shut them up about the resurrection. Everybody knew where the body was buried, and yet no one's ever been able to find him. But that doesn't mean no one ever saw him again. Jesus appeared to many, and we have eyewitness accounts of his ascension, and that's what explains the rapid spread of the gospel in the face of hostile skepticism. And by the Spirit's power, the church has grown in every age, in every culture, under every type of government, in every part of the world. And the great irony is that when John writes this gospel, his readers already know how far and how fast his kingdom has already spread. His message did go to the dispersed Jews among the Greeks. And even the Greeks believed in him and received the Holy Spirit. What was hard to imagine for the Jews when Jesus was in their presence became reality. Which had to have been encouraging to the original readers. To know that Jesus' words are trustworthy and that God is sovereign. They, They fortify the weary soul who has many questions about life. Because Jesus makes it clear that the path to glory is paved with the stones of suffering and opposition. His life and ministry, everything that he said, now serve his people as a trustworthy map to their final destination because of where he has really gone. Jesus says something very similar, but very different to his followers in John chapter 14. He tells them, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I am going. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus says the very opposite thing to his followers as he does to these crowds. You know where I'm going. And you know the Father because you know me. And so one day, you will find me. And you will be with me. If we want to live confidently for Christ, then we can't be like this unbelieving crowd crowd who asserts what they think they know about Jesus. They start confident, but then Jesus inserts mystery and they end up with questions they can't answer, all the while rejecting Jesus. Don't do that. That's so foolish. I mean, people aren't qualified to speak on such spiritual matters as this apart from God. Most people are just talking in spiritual platitudes and we buy it because it sounds good and feels good. But there's no real evidence for it. Meanwhile, the Bible's a book that's proven to be trustworthy. And that's exactly why I believe Jesus inserts mystery where people think they have knowledge. Remember, that's the question we started with. Why would Jesus insert mystery if he wants to be known? The mystery Jesus inserts here shatters false confidence about what people think they know about Jesus. So that when he dies on the cross and ascends into heaven, there's no longer a risk of mistaking why the Father sent him, or where he's really from, or what he's really doing, or where he's really gone. Inserting mystery, blasting their confidence, confusing them, helps them avoid making those mistakes. I said in the beginning that John's warning us not to reject Jesus because of what you don't fully understand. It doesn't sound like a warning until you understand the historical context. At this point, John's readers can see the tomb is empty. The Spirit is at work in his church. And those who rejected Jesus based on their skepticism about where he's from and what he was doing and where he's going look very wrong at this point. They were wrong. So it's a warning. Be humble. Don't reject Jesus based on what you don't fully understand. Listen to him and believe. Let's pray. God, we thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for making yourself known and for doing so in such a clear way. God, thank you for Jesus and his cross. Thank you for your word. Help our unbelief. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.